All right, we'll go ahead and get started. We're going to be in Ephesians 1, so you can start turning there if you want. That's how we'll begin our time. So let me go ahead and um, pray for us as we get ready to start this new series on the doctrines of grace. So let's pray. Father, we are uh, eternally grateful for um, the mystery of the cross, the way you have redeemed us, that you had planned it, and that you um, sent your son, that he came, that you accomplished salvation through his life, death, and resurrection, that you have sent your spirit um, to give us new life. Um, All these things that were um, hidden in in some ways, although pointed to throughout the entire Old Testament, uh, now revealed in these last days. God, we pray that we would rejoice in the things that we see, the things that we see in your word. God, you'd help us to behold wondrous things in your word about you and about the way you've related to us and continue to relate to us. Um, We desire that this would all be to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're doing a study on the doctrines of grace. That's what we're beginning today. And um, I wanted to set the scene for this by looking at Ephesians 1. And we'll kind of go from there. Ephesians 1 deals with the new covenant blessings. You see that in verses 3 through 14. And so you remember that the new covenant right, is, was promised in the Old Covenant. I mean, we saw it foretold places like Ezekiel, places like Jeremiah. You saw it in types, right? There were certain things that got established. Uh, so, for example, the priesthood, right? That's a type of Christ. In other words, it, it pointed to the greater reality that would be fulfilled when Christ came as the priest, right? The kingship, you see that happening. So all these things, you know, were pointed to, and they come to their fullness in the New Covenant, which comes when Jesus arrives, right? He comes on earth um, and does his redemptive work. And so Ephesians 1 is really kind of going through that and thinking about how, um, how great God is in that, the, the joy that we ought to have in that. And so we're going to be looking at this new covenant promises. And, and what I want to see, the reason I want to begin here is but I'm not really defining doctrines of grace yet. That's the goal. Really, the goal for today is what are we talking about and why are we going to talk about it? That's kind of the big picture goal of what we're trying to do, okay? But what I want to start with, before I even get into that, is I, I want to say, okay, let's just go to the Bible, and we're going to see that's our presupposition later. We have, everyone's presuppositions, ours is, we go to the Bible to see what God says, right? I don't start with, well, what do I think? What makes sense to me? Um, I'm finite, and I'm sinful. So I'm not, it's not going to end well if that's where I start, right? So I want to start with God's Word. And so what I want to get is glimpses of the doctrines of grace, which essentially is going to be you know, something to the effect of what God has done to save us. And um, so I want to get some, some glimpses of that before we really jump into more of a description. So here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to, we're going to see how this works. Um, I've never done this with a big group like this. I've done this with college groups. So we'll see how the interactive using the screen part works. If it doesn't help you, sorry, just close your eyes and listen or something. But um, I, I'm going to read a few verses at a time, and I want us to answer these questions from the text. What has God done? How has he accomplished that? And why did he do it that way? As best we can tell from the text. Now, I'm not saying this text gives us every answer. I'm just saying, what are some of the basic things we see as we read? We're just making observations. That's all we're doing, okay? All right, um, so let's talk verses three through four. So what, how, and why? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So let's start with what. What is it that God has done? What do we see in here? He has blessed us. That's right. Yep. So he has blessed us. 
in Christ. That's right. That's pretty key, right? That it's all these, and you're going to see that, by the way, throughout this whole section, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him, right? Okay. Um, and he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, right? That's what we're seeing. I know my circles are not great. My handwriting's worse, so could be worse. I could be handwriting stuff for you. Um, okay, let's talk now about how. What's some basics about how this happens? I'm not, again, I'm not saying it gives us every detail, but what's kind of the big picture of how these blessings come to us? They come to us in Christ. That's right. What else? He chose us. That's right. Yep, so even as he chose us, and again, in him, right? We see that again. He chose us in him. All right. Um, and what is the purpose? Yes, that's right. So that, that's a, um, you know, purpose word, right? Here's the purpose. So that, and then he gives us the purpose, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay? All right. Let's go on. So, so we have, he blesses with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How? By choosing us in him, in Christ. Why? So that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay? All right, now let's go on to the next section. Same thing. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Okay, so in this section, what do we see is the, uh, what, what's the what? The order's a little bit different here than the first one. Adoption, that's right. For adoption uh, to himself as sons, right? So he adopts us, brings us into his family. And again, we, we, would, we would note through Christ Jesus, right? Okay, so if we're going to talk now um, how, um, what, what are some of the things that happen that bring us to this point of adoption? Yes, in love he predestined us. That's right. Um, you could also uh, po point to... Um, well, let's see. Hold on. Uh, is that my why? No, that's not my why yet, is it? Yeah, that's right. So, so I was going to attach this to this. He predestined us according to the purpose of his will, right? So we see um, the, the answer to the question of uh, how? Well, predestining his will, right? According to the purpose of his will. Okay, so now what is the um, kind of the outcome here, the... the uh, why of it. That's right. To the praise of his glorious grace, right? So praise, but specifically the praise of his glorious grace. So we're praising God for the purpose, for, for his glorious grace. So you can see doctrines of grace. We're talking about how God has shown grace to us, right? We're we clear on that? Okay. All right. So next, verses seven and following, we're doing the same um, what, how, why? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So let's talk what, what do we see here? What, what, is, what do we get? What does he do? Okay, so we have forgiveness of our trespasses. What else? Redemption, right? We have redemption. And again, this is all in him, right? Through his blood. So, I mean, it's very clear. Everything is coming to us through Jesus. I mean, you, you haven't seen anything in this passage about through our good works, 
through our in superior intellect, you know, through our moral superiority. It's none of that. It's all in him, through him. Everything comes to us through him. It's a gift, grace, right? Okay, uh, so now let's talk about the how. How does this come to us? I kind of already told you that. According to the riches of his grace, right? According to the riches of his grace. So it's grace and it's a lavishing, right? He lavishes his grace on us. Um, it comes to us, we could even say, in his wisdom, right? Through his blood, yep, yep. So we could, we could say that that is another, um, it's kind of both, right? That's good. Um, according to his purpose, so we, we see that purpose statement again, right? It's, it's his purpose, which would be tied to his will, for sure. And um, the, the why, what's the why here? Yeah. Yep, so this two is a, another purpose word, right? Two. Here, here's his goal, here's his purpose. Unite all things in heaven and on earth uh, in him. And um, we could tie that to Colossians. Colossians talks about uniting everything in Christ. Um, so, so the goal is going to be a restoration, ultimately, and it all revolves around Christ being the center of that. Okay, so let's move on to verse 11. I know we're going quick. My point here is just I want you to see big picture. That's all we're doing. I'm not trying to go deep into this passage this morning, okay? We probably will do that in a future session. So let's look at verses 11 and 12 and do the same thing. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Okay, so looking at this, what? What has he done? Or what, what, are, what are we getting here? Yes, we've obtained an inheritance, right? Okay, and then how does that come to us? What color am I using for that red? How, how did that come to us? Yes, so having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, what? All things according to the counsel of his will. Right? So we see the predestined idea again. And I understand we're, we're not, I'm not going through what does predestined mean at this point. That's going to be a future session, right? Uh, but it is important to note if someone asks you, do you believe in predestination? What does your answer need to be? Yes. Now you might think about that and define it differently. That's where the debate should be. If we're going to have a debate, that's where it needs to be. Not do you believe in predestination? The word is in the Bible, right? I understand you may have questions about that, and we may even disagree about that, and that's, that's what we're going to be talking about and thinking about, right? Okay, um, so purpose. You guys see a purpose word here? So that, right? Let me just tell you, interpreting New Testament epistles, if you look for words like so that, that is going to be a huge help to you in saying, what is the purpose of this? What's the purpose of this doctrine? What's the purpose of him telling me this? If you find so that, it's going to help you a lot. All right, so that... Um, we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be what? To the praise of his glory. So we've already seen that before, right? So, you, I mean, over and over again, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, in him, in him, in him. Okay. In him, you also, when you heard of the word, heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All right, so what happens here? What's the what? Sealed. Somebody say sealed. Yep. So we are, did I do the wrong color there? I think I did the wrong color. Great. Rookie mistake. All right. The colors are very important. These are, these are inspired colors, right? That's what this is. 
Um, am I supposed to be green? What color am I supposed to be? Yeah, I'm supposed to be green. I think I did blue initially, yeah. See, it's confusing, isn't it? Um, okay, so, oh, uh-oh, I didn't know. I could, that's fancy. Okay, um, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, right? Sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, so that's the... The, the, yeah, the, the what and then the how is that the Spirit is our guarantee, right? Um, so we could say, you know, who is the guarantee? So, so how is this going to happen? Well, the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the who, right? Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. So, so how, how is it that this happens? Well, by the Spirit. We're sealed with this promise. Um, and what's the promise? Well, the promise is the inheritance, right? You guys see the connection there? Right? So we have this, this promise of an inheritance, um, which again tie, ties into this idea, we are adopted into God's family. So we are sons of God, right? And, and by the way, the New Testament term sons is important there because what they're, what they're communicating, is, it refers to, to men and women, right? But the reason sons is important is because who got the inheritance? It was the sons, right? The daughters would marry and their inheritance would come through their husband. And I mean, that was the way the culture was done. So sons is still an important word to retain as we, we want to understand it that way. That doesn't mean it doesn't apply to women, obviously. Um, okay, so promised the Holy Spirit and the promise is the inheritance that he has given and stored up for us. And uh, what, what is the, the goal in all this? Did I do that wrong again with the colors? Unbelievable. All right. So yeah, I'm just going to leave it like it is. But yes, uh, to the praise of his glory, right? Ha ha ha. I quit. I'm just going to do that color. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That's and that's an important point too. We're going to come to that. So yes, you, I'm glad you pointed that out. Let me. Uh, what color am I using for the how right now? Blue. We're going to say blue. Yeah, I think I did blue on this one, but that's I, I, different than the other one. So yes. Um, so. Now, now I will say, when is um, is telling us, you know, when we experience this sealing. I think that's true, um, but there is a there is a hearing uh, of the word of the truth, right? And so, so part of the reason we're talking about doctrines of grace is because it does become something where we have to say, um, we've already seen predestined and all these other things. Well, we haven't really defined those words yet, but you know, how do all these things fit together? That's been one of the questions we have, right? God predestined. We have to hear and believe. Both those things are, are true, right? So there is belief. The belief in him is also part of that. Mm-hmm. When heard the truth, believed in him. That's yeah, so I, and I think his point is that that, that is um, part of the how we experience this ceiling, right? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Well, that's what I'm asking. Yes. It appears to be. Yes, and I think you're right. I think that's right. Yep. It's a, it's a complex thing. You don't hear and not believe. Mm-hmm. You you can't believe without hearing. Yep. Hear and believe. Yep. Yep. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And those are the things we're going to plumb more into. And, and there's other passages, right, that are going to help us. This is not the only passage. My goal is just to give you, I just want you to get a glimpse of how is it, how do we see, or what do we see about God's grace coming to us? And Ephesians 1 tells us a lot about that. And we're not, we're not going into details. All I'm doing right now is just saying, I want you to see there's this kind of drumbeat in Ephesians 1 of different things, that themes that we're going to have to explore, Right? Okay, that's good. So I'm glad you brought that up. That was helpful. Okay, um, so we're going to stop right there in that for now. If we, if we were to look at verses 15 and following, we have a prayer, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but briefly we can say, 
uh, you know, reasons to study the doctrines of grace. I'm going to give you some more reasons at the end, but since we're in Ephesians 1 already, I want you to look at this. Look at verses 18 through 20. So 18 through 20. And we see, uh, I think, at least three things here. The first one, look at verse 18, the beginning of it. Having the eyes of your heart. So he's, this is Paul praying for them. He's just got done talking about God's grace and saving them. Right? I mean, that's what he, we all agree. That's the basic theme of, of what we've already seen. God, God's grace to them in saving them. And, and so here's part of his prayer. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So in other words, you have now, I want you, I'm praying that you'll have the ability to, that you may know what is the hope to which you were called. So what is the first thing we see there that um, he wants for them? Yes. So number one, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Okay, so one of the things I'm trying to say is, and we're going to talk more about this, I think, later, but the reason for studying the doctrines of grace is not merely academic. It does involve your mind. It does. It has to. I mean, anytime you read the Bible, it has to involve your mind. I mean, right? Okay. So, but what, what is, it's tied to our, why study this? This is part, I mean, because Paul's praying this, right? So it's not like just reading the words on the page does this. We have to say, God, give me, give me, or give this person, right, to know the hope to which he has called me, called them. That's the prayer. So it's not just reading it. It's God has to supernaturally, you know, give us this. But I mean, we pray for everything, right? God, help me persevere. God, help me trust you. God, help me overcome this sin. I mean, that's the Christian life. It's, prayer is like breathing, right? That's what the Puritan said. It's just, that's just part of what it means to be a Christian, and so when, he, when he's just got done talking about God's grace and saving them, one of the first things he prays for them is that they would know the hope to which he has called you. So, I would, so what I would say is, why are we going to study those doctrines like we just saw in the beginning part of chapter 1? Well, it's so that that's part of what God is going to use to accomplish answering this prayer. That you would know the hope. You'd have a confidence in the hope that you have in Christ as a Christian. Yeah? Is it before that, isn't it, um, he's actually praying for in the end of 17, mm -hmm. that the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him is going to do something so that you may know the hope. Mm -hmm. There are the riches of it. So it comes from yeah. spirit of wisdom and revelation. Yes. Yeah. And that's what we were just saying. Why do we pray about this? Because it's not just having read the words on the page, right? And you see that in, uh, is it 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, it talks about spiritual things. You know, they have to be discerned by the Spirit. In other words, an unbeliever can read the Bible, and I do think that that's a means God is going to use, but the only reason it's really going to have an impact is because the Spirit applies it to the heart, right? Otherwise, we're just going to read it and think, oh, well, that was nice, or that was terrible, but there's no change, right? Okay, uh, number two, so let's do a uh, second thing, where the riches of, um, let's see, oh yeah, so second, he's, he's still praying that you may know, so that, that, that you may know is kind of the, the big picture here, Sorry, that was a terrible box, but just go with me. That you may know, uh, number two, what are the riches of ah his glorious inheritance in the saints? Um, what's interesting here is um, it's talking about God. I would have thought that it would say that you would know what are your riches, the glorious inheritance, your glorious inheritance. But it really is, it seems to be saying something to the effect of that you would know something about how God delights in his people as he's taken them to be his inheritance. 
Um, this is what one commentator says. I thought it was helpful. Let me see if I can find it. The point here is that Paul wants his readers to know how deeply God values and cherishes them. They are incredibly valuable and glorious, and a glorious inheritance. As an earthly king values treasuries full of silver and gold, God values his people as his wealth and honor. Um, so I think that's a, that's a humbling thing to think, God, you, you value your people. Now, this is not, don't hear this through the modern self-esteem movement, right? As Americans, we probably hear that that way. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying you are just such a wonderful gift. I mean, what would God do without you? Because you are just amazing. I mean, as we keep going through the, this study, you're going to see we are totally depraved. We are not amazing, right? So, so I think what he's saying is to see that God adopted you and has made you his, as king of the universe, his inheritance in his created order is an incredible thing, right? Okay, number three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. So this is number three, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So see his power put on display. What power has to be, be um, brought to bear to take someone who's in rebellion? We haven't talked about all these things yet, but rebellion, spiritually dead, uh, enemy of God, all these other things, and make them an adopted son or daughter of God who loves God. What power could do that, right? I mean, and you think about how much power is required to, for water to you know, cut channels into rock or something, right? Um, we're talking about spiritually dead going to spiritually alive. What power is required? And we want to know something of that power. You, you know it because you've experienced it, right? If you're a Christian, you've experienced it. Um, you know, I mean, I heard one, one person talking about this, and they said something like, you know, as a Christian, it's like you're saved, and then the whole rest of your Christian life is fixed in some ways, figuring out how in the world did that happen? I mean, really, because you, you just, you see how sinful you are and you're just thinking, how did that happen? I mean, you can give, you can say, well, this person shared the gospel. Well, yeah, but I heard the gospel a hundred times before I believed. It wasn't, it wasn't just the hearing. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't apart from the hearing. Don't, don't hear me wrong. That's the means God used, but it wasn't just like the mean that, you know, hearing is the hammer. And as long as you just hit the hammer every time the nail goes in, this is not a direct cause and effect thing. Some, some power has to be wielded that can make this happen. And the power is God. I think that's what we're seeing. Okay. Um, so that's all we're going to do on that. We need to keep moving for the sake of time here. I don't, do I have, Larry, do you have the mute thing on this? If you don't, it's fine. Okay. We'll just leave it up there. Uh, let's, let's move through this because we do have some other things I want to cover. But hopefully that just gives you some introductory things to think about. I want to now talk about what are the doctrines of grace in a little more detail. And then I want to talk about one more thing about um, some presuppositions we have that as we approach this study. Um, and then we may talk a little bit more about why we study it. So big picture, you have this on your handout, big picture, summarizing it. Doctrines of grace encompass uh, several uh, theological categories or areas of systematic theology, uh, at least three of them. I mean, you could say more, but theology proper, because we're talking about what is God like. And if you think about it, that really does become the issue. We haven't talked about Calvin and Arminius and all these other things yet. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, but some of this debate, really, the main issue people have is, what is God like? Well, God is love. And that means blah, 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 blah. Right? God, you see what I'm saying? It, be, it becomes an issue of what does it mean to say that God is love? What does it mean to say that God is a redeeming and gracious God or holy or, you know, working out those details? Um, the, the other thing is anthropology. So what is man's nature like? And, and what has God done in, has God given us some form of a prevenient grace? 
to give us the ability to believe, or are we so dead that we can't even do that? We're talking things about human nature, fallen human nature specifically. Soteriology, obviously, soteriology just deals with the doctrine of salvation. How can sinful man be reconciled to holy God? So it kind of combines the first two points, right? So these are a couple areas it's combining. So what I'm trying to show you is doctrines of grace are kind of, metaphorically speaking, it's kind of like a constellation of doctrines. It's not just one doctrine. It's a constellation of a bunch of different things that we're trying to put together in our understanding as we work out, basically answering the question, how is it that someone that, that Christians are made? What, what can explain the fact that we have Christians, right? How, how do we get to that point? Um, how, how does God work out his saving work? So you have the b- dark backdrop of the sky, our sinful condition, and the brilliant light of God's glory in salvation. That's what we're trying to figure out, and it's a constellation of, of multiple stars, so to speak. Uh, definition, I'm going to kind of give you some basic definitional statements here. The doctrines of grace are biblical truths that, and here's a couple of these truths, God sovereignly chose to save certain spiritually dead people. Number two, that Jesus came to purchase all that was needed for this salvation. Number three, that the Spirit sovereignly applies the spiritual blessings of Christ's work. Um, where's your hand out here? Do I have another one here? Where am I at? Well, uh, three, including giving faith. Ah, yes, by regenerating and uh, preserving those the Father chose and the Son died for. And all of this in spite of our own persistent rebellion. So basically, the doctrines of grace tell us about God's sovereign demonstration of his saving goodness. That's what we're saying. God's sovereign demonstration of his saving goodness. How does that get demonstrated? How does it get worked out? Now, that's the big picture. If we were to zoom in, we can, we can say there are five, at least five different facets to this doctrine of grace, and it has been summarized in popular um, English as the acronym TULIP, okay? So we're going we're to talk about this briefly here, but uh, the TULIP stands for, I think I gave it to you there, yeah, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. So those are summary points. Maybe not necessarily all the best ways of wording that, but I think it is helpful. So let's let's talk about these real briefly. Um, you, I, I hope I don't frustrate you because you may be, you know, thinking I would, I want to, I want, I want to know. What do you mean? Okay, I'm just introducing this. I can't. If I could go into all this today, we wouldn't need the next like ten or thirteen. How many weeks we're going to spend in this? Okay, um, I can't. I'm just giving you the introduction. So hold on to your questions. So total or radical depravity. Uh, or we might say corruption, and you, I gave you a couple passages if you're just itching to read something about it between now and then. Go to the Bible. That's where I would encourage you to go. And so we, we see a couple points here. Um, I'm, I have probably more on my handout, so I'm not going to necessarily go straight through what you have there. But uh, this is not to say we are as wicked as we possibly could be, by the way. Sometimes people hear this and they think, well, total depravity isn't true because everyone's not running around killing everyone. Well, that's not what total depravity means. It doesn't mean everybody is as wicked in terms of their actions as they possibly could be. In other words, everybody is not Satan himself in terms of how off, you know, they are just destroying everything around them. Uh, but the, the point is that we are totally, or we might say radically, which comes from the root word um, radix, which means root. At our root, at our core, we are corrupt towards God. We are uh, you might say slaves to sin, to use biblical words, slaves to sin, right? You have to, we, we just have to do what sin demands of us. 
apart from God's grace. Um, we, we are dead to God, not alive. We're dead to God, alive to ourselves. We are overcome by our rebellion against God such that we are in, we're enslaved, we're dead, we're blind. I mean, those are all biblical categories and words. So we are totally unable to contribute anything to our own salvation. That's going to be the outcome, the logical outcome of this. Um, and I think you see it in, in passages of Scripture too. It's not just a logical thing, but um, we're totally unable and incapable of doing anything to redeem ourselves. Okay, so we are uh, radically corrupt, unconditional. Um, yeah, I'll come back to that. Okay, so unconditional sovereign or sovereign election. God chose before the beginning of the world that he would save a particular people from their rebellion. In doing this, in his election, he is setting his love on people, right? He's setting his love on particular people. He is doing that before the foundation of the world. This is not based on their goodness. That's what we mean when we say it is unconditional. It is not a, well, that one over there is doing a pretty good job. Um, I think I'm going to choose them, right? It's not like a, we'll talk more about this later, but it's not like a, um, kickball game, you know, and God's trying to choose his team. And he's like, that one looks like, you know, that's a big hitter right there. So I'm going to pick him, right? I mean, that's not what's going on. Um, we'll talk more about that later, but unconditional election is God choosing to show mercy and grace. Limited or definite atonement. Definite might be a better word, but atonement refers to uh, what? What does atonement refer to? The work of Christ on the cross and, and his life, right? So his perfect life, perfectly obedient life, his active obedience, his passive obedience, his perfect obedience to God's will in dying on the cross for sinners as a sacrifice. So he atones for our sins, for, for our sins. And this atonement is definite. There are particular people that would definitely be credited with his righteousness, is what we're saying when we talk about this. In other words, the design of Christ's work and the effects of Christ's work are guaranteed for those who God elected. That's what we're seeing. Um, it, it was definite. God purchased the elect's faith as well. I think we see that. Um, so, so I guess what we mean when we say this is salvation was not just kind of wishful thinking. I, God's saying, listen, I'm going to do everything I can in order that people can be saved, and I really hope some people will be saved. What we mean by definite atonement is we mean there were particular individuals who would actually be saved particular individuals. It was not a potential atonement. In other words, it was offered, but it was just potential. It, could, it may or may not get taken, but no one might take advantage of it. No, it was, it was definite in that it was going to happen, which really fits when you think about the father plans it, the son is going to carry out in line with what the father elected. Otherwise, we kind of have to separate those things, don't we? Um, it's, it's like the father can elect, but then the son may or may not die for those individuals, and it's like we have two different things going on. Um, now, I realize that's a logical argument. We're going to talk more about how logic fits into this later. Um, our biggest goal is, what do the scriptures say, right? But that should, that's going to influence the logical inferences we end up making, right? Okay, so we see that with uh, limited atonement. The father's electing is in line with the son's loving his bride and atoning for her. That's interesting language too, right? It talks about we're the bride of Christ. I think that even points to this idea. There's a definite, specific, the son is coming for his bride, right? Okay, irresistible or effective grace. Um, God's saving grace would be applied to those who the Father chose and who the Son died for by the Spirit. The Spirit is going to guarantee that this uh, atonement will be applied to the people that God has elected, the Father has elected. 
So you see Father, Son, and Spirit all involved in our salvation. And, and why, why is this necessary? Because if, if point number one is true, our total depravity, right? Then what can overcome that? Because if you're dead to God, you, you cannot make motion towards God. Dead people don't get up and walk unless, like Lazarus, they are irresistibly brought to life and called forth, right? And so that's what we're going to see in irresistible grace. We go from dead to alive. We go from blind to seeing, right? Think about 2 Corinthians. You were blinded. The God of this world had blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. What does God do? The, the language there is essentially the same as Genesis 1, or at least the idea, I should say, is the same as Genesis 1. He, he creates, and he creates light in the heart of the darkened soul, is what you see in, I think that's, I think it's 2 Corinthians 4. Um, so his grace comes and he changes us. So, you know, it's important to say, part of the question is, what is grace? That's part of what the issue is. What is grace? Is it just a tool that God gives that we can pick up and use, right? Or is it something where God actually, in showing us grace, part of that grace is he actually gives us faith. He doesn't just give us a tool that we can pick up and decide if we're going to hammer out faith or not. He actually irresistibly is giving us that, right? It's not just a tool. It's, a, it's an actuality that God gives. It's something that God himself does. That doesn't mean he doesn't use means. I mean, he, he does. But God is the one doing it. He's the one who's going to ensure that it happens. Um, his grace is going to change us. Grace does the work. God does the work through grace. And um, let's talk about perseverance. Perseverance or preservation of the saints. Since God has elected his people... Since the Son died to redeem them, since the, new sp- the Spirit gives them new life, they will receive all the grace needed to make it into the eternal kingdom. That's what we mean there. God's grace doesn't start towards those he has elected and then change his mind. The Spirit does not bring someone to life only to let them die spiritually. There is, there is real work here. Um, the, the Son doesn't redeem only to lose again. Right? When we think about John. Right? He knows his sheep, he takes hold of them, and no one snatches away from them, so away from him or the Father. They're in his hand, Jesus, and they're in the Father's hand. And in passages like Ephesians 1, they're sealed by the Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit, working for our salvation. Grace, in other words, grace continues. That's what we're saying in Perseverance of the Saints. Grace doesn't just save us and then say, hey, look, I got you this far. You know, blessings on the journey. Right? It continues. His love... Let's see, he doesn't lose his sheep, his love doesn't run dry, his powerful grip is not overcome by anything, and he does not change his mind regarding his people. Uh, I mean, you can ask the question of yourself, you know, why, why do I wake up still believing in Jesus? When the world's against me, my flesh is against me, the devil's against me. That's kind of what we're answering in this question. Because he preserves us, and we persevere because he's preserving us. Right? Those warning passages that he gives us, they will have their effect in his people because he preserves you, because his spirit's in you. And when you read things about, you know, how we, we must press on, the spirit in the genuine, who's, because the spirit's in the genuine believer, causes you, by grace, to keep doing that, to want to do that. So we might ask, why do I wake up believing? Well, the answer is because God's sovereign grace continues perseverance of the saints. Well, let's talk about the order, how we're going to approach it. The, the way I just gave it to you is the general order. We, we talk about it often, and it's a good order. It, it follows, a, I think, a logical, probably kind of sort of time progression of how this unfolds. Uh, but um, I think it's probably helpful to present it maybe a little bit differently and think about it this way. Think about it in the way we experience it. 
In your experience, when you became a Christian, did you start, well, you probably just start with total depravity. We're going to come to that in a second. I do think that's a good starting point. Um, but when we talk about unconditional election, how many of, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, right? But how many of you, when you became a Christian, that was like the first, now some of you might have been, I'm not saying it wasn't, because of the way, because the way you were evangelized, the passages they took to you to, you may have seen that very early on. Most of you, probably not the first initial experience. It was probably something like, yeah. And that's what we're, and so that, so the order we're going to cover it, that's going to be the last thing we're going to get to. We're going to start with total depravity, right? Because if you're a Christian, your first experience was, now I'm not saying you grasped all of your depravity as a Christian. In fact, I don't think you did. Look at Paul. Paul's example is one of going, as he, even as he matures spiritually, he actually, by the end of his life, seems to have a better grasp of his depravity than when he first became a Christian. I think, I think you see that. I think that's just the progression. Um, so the, the, we'll start with depravity, but you, you had to come to some understanding of there is something really wrong with me in my relationship to God. The problem is not God, it's me. I have a problem, right? I'm in rebellion against God. That's the first thing you come to realize is your depravity. So we're going to begin there. And then we're going to talk about irresistible grace. Now we could switch this with, with the next one, which is going to be the atonement, um, because both these things kind of happen at the same time, but there's this irresistible grace, God leading you towards faith. If you're a Christian, it's because you had this experience of God's grace changing you. You recognize your sin. What am I going to do about it? Thanks be to God, right? To use Paul's language. I was a wretched man. I was spiritually dead. And thanks be to God, he showed grace to me. Um, so, you know, and I, we know this because when, when God asks you, why, how did you get into this kingdom? You're standing before him, Right? Your answer, I can guarantee you, is not going to be, if you're a Christian, it's not going to be, well, I was just smarter than, than the culture around me. I mean, look at, look at the crazy stuff these people were posting on Twitter. I was way smarter, and that's why I believed. Right? It's not going to be that. It's not going to be, well, I was just morally superior to the people around me. It's going to be grace. Why are you letting me in? Grace. I didn't deserve it. You are gracious. Right? And part of becoming, one of the first things about becoming a Christian is you recognize your sinfulness, and you recognize God's grace. As, as what you needed. Uh, the, the next thing is the atoning death of Christ. Now, again, this could switch orders because as you're getting grace, what that means is you're seeing the need for your sins to be covered and that Jesus is the only way that can happen. You sent Jesus. He's my savior, my rescuer. That's grace. I receive him as the only way of salvation. I believe in him as the on, my only hope for eternal life. Um, okay, and then um, we talk about unconditional election. I think what happens is, you know, you become a Christian, you spend the rest of your life trying to figure out what happened. I think there's something true about that. And so, so you, you keep thinking about it, and the more you see your depravity, and the more you see how entrenched, like, it wasn't just that I was sinful, it was like, I was, compl- I mean, I was just in the dark and loving it. It wasn't just I was in the dark, I actually was liking the direction I was going for a time before. How, what happened? Right? And, and so I think the more you think about it and, and you combine, the more you start understanding your own depravity. And then you, you start reading the Bible and you see passages like Ephesians 1. Oh, this makes sense now. God, this happened because you graciously planned that you would do this. You decided to adopt me into your family. I mean, think about it. If someone gets adopted into a family. Who takes the initiative? The parent goes and adopts. Right? I mean, generally. I mean, I understand things could get different in our culture depending on how old the kid is. Okay, but generally it's parent is going and adopting. That's the picture we have, right? So you're just starting to realize those things. And adoption means some sort of choice. And it wasn't that I made the choice. So you start to realize more and more of that generally. Now, I understand that that, uh, I'm not saying that you are 
less mature of a Christian if you really are struggling with this and thinking, oh, but I did make a choice. And that's part of what we talked about earlier. We do have to hear the word and believe. There is something that happens where we do experience faith, right? Um, I, I think though the scripture is clear, and this is why we're going to teach this, but I think the scripture is clear that this is because God chose us. That was the decisive change, was him. Well, I was not decisive, though I did make a decision to trust him. That's true. God's choosing is decisive. Um, so we're going we're gonna to look at it in that order, and we're going to unpack it. Oh, wait, one more thing. Then perseverance. There's this ongoing persevering faith to the end. As a Christian, you continue to experience God's grace daily as you fight the fight of faith, as you resist sin, as you grow in holiness, right? As you continue believing, that's perseverance. So that's the order we're going to tackle it in um, as we go through this. You don't have to memorize that order. That's fine. I just want you to know why it's not going to be the the tulip order. Uh, That's how we're going to approach it over the next several weeks. Briefly, we need to talk history. I know I'm moving really fast, but listen, we got a lot of introductory stuff. And I want you to save all your questions for Doug next week. Historical uh, view, view here. We need to talk briefly about um, Calvinism, five points of Calvinism. Some of you may recognize those five points are often referred to as the five points of Calvinism. This brings some controversy because people are thinking, who's this guy, Calvin, or I know this guy, Calvin, I hate this guy, Calvin, or whatever, right? I love this guy, Calvin, that's why I believe it. We need to talk about this briefly. Um, Calvin was one of the great reformers. He died in 1654. Uh, I don't have time to go into the Reformation right now. Um, so if you have questions about that, see me afterwards, I guess, but he was one of the great reformers. Arminius, who um, Arminianism is named after, uh, was born in 1560, died in 1609. You don't have to memorize those dates. My point is Arminius lives after Calvin, okay? That's, that's just helpful to know. Um, in 1610, after both those men are dead, they are both dead, later we're going to get what's going to become known as now what we call the five points of Calvinism. So did Calvin come up with the five points of Calvinism? No. Okay? Now, but what happened was uh, his, his understanding of the Scripture certainly shaped this whole area. And this is happening in uh, the Netherlands, although that's not where he was. He, he ministered somewhere else. But by this time, the Netherlands this is where this is happening. And uh, some followers, Arminius being one of them, says, listen, there's some things I don't really agree with about what Calvin said about how salvation works out. And so he starts talking about it. He dies. His followers write a five-point statement to the officials, basically saying, we disagree with what Calvin taught on this. And what they're trying to do is change the church, because church and state are pretty wed in the Dutch culture at this point, okay? And so they want there to be changes. That's why they have to go to the political and religious leaders about this. Um, That's called the remonstrance. Then there's a response that comes from the, the church leaders, and that is referred to as the canons of Dort. And those canons of Dort is where we get our five points from, okay? So the only reason I'm saying this is because the accusation sometimes will be this guy Calvin comes up with these five points and we're just all supposed to toe the line. I'm just saying that's not the way it happened. I just want to be historically clear, okay? That's all I'm saying. That's not a huge deal. Let's just be accurate about what the way history unfolded. Um, I'm not saying that proves Cal- Calvinism is right. I'm just saying let's just, let's just not throw that straw man argument around, right? Um, and... Uh, so the point is, I'm not a, I'm not a Calvin or Arminius, Arminius groupie. That's not what we're trying to say here, right? Like, I'm a groupie. I just follow it because, you know, my favorite guy, he, he held this view or that guy held that view. That's not the point. We want to say, if it's in Scripture, I believe it. And that brings us to our presuppositions. Presuppositions matter. No one approaches an issue neutrally. You just don't. Now, we, we try to recognize our presuppositions and ask, are they right and good presuppositions? Are they not right and good presuppositions? Do they line up with reality? Do they not line up with reality? We have to ask those questions. And so what I want to do is just be up front and lay out what I think all of us will have in common as presuppositions. 
regardless, I hope, regardless of where you fall on this issue at this moment, right? You, you may know more about this issue to the point where you say, I don't agree with these, with these doctrines of grace teaching at this point. Okay, I still think we can agree on these presuppositions, and this is what's going to help us move forward in a conversation about it. Number one, our allegiance, our first allegiance is to the Bible, and that is far superior to any other allegiance, whether it's Calvinism, Arminianism, or any denomination. Uh, our, our, how refreshing it is to be among Christians that say, what does the Bible say? And I think we have that at Grace Church, right? What does the Bible say? We want to know what it says because we believe God has spoken in the scripture. So our allegiance is not to a system, though I think it's okay to use shorthand. I'm not saying it's wrong to say, yes, I, I believe in the five points of Calvinism. Now, you, wisdom might dictate whether you should use that or not use that, right? Because people may have all sorts of different ideas than what you mean, and it may not be helpful. But my point is shorthand is not necessarily bad. It, and it's not bad to say, uh, I have a Baptist understanding of certain things versus Presbyterian. That could be helpful, right? There may be times where that's not as helpful. It may confuse people. So, but my point is, your allegiance is not to that denomination, this person, this system. It's to, what does the Bible say? And shorthand is okay if it's expressing what you see in the Bible. That's all I'm trying to say. But number one, your primary allegiance is the Bible. What does it say? Number two, the Bible is our authority and must guide all our logical inferences, not the other way around. We're a people of the Bible. We want to say, what does the scripture say? So what this means is, I'm taking this one step further. We don't want to be a people that say, yes, yes, I see that in scripture, but, 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 but. And I'm always saying, you know, but I don't think of it, you know, and, and we, we, but, but logically it can't be, I'm not saying logic, we're Christians, God has designed logic, we use logic. We're fallen, our logic can be twisted. So we're not always just, but, 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 I'm taking my logic and submitting it to the scripture. Does it, does it fit, does my inference, it's okay to make inferences, but does my inference fit the scripture or does it contradict it? That's what I'm saying. And this issue, there are going to be logical inferences that are made on both sides of the debate. The question is, are they, are they submitting to the scripture? That's what we want to do. We want to submit to the scripture on this. And I think we can all agree with that, no matter what side you're on, on that issue. Third, we must think hard about what we see in Scripture to understand it, and the Lord is the one who must give us understanding. 2 Timothy 2.7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Both those things are true. Think about it, right? Think, for the Lord will give you understanding. So some, some, and the reason I bring this up is because I think this is our presupposition. God has to give us understanding, and we do have to think. Our tendency sometimes is to not want to think, because it's hard. So one of the things we should address is your temptation might be to say, this is just too hard, we can't understand it. It's just God will sort it out in the end. I'm just saying, have you spent time really thinking about it though? Because I do, th your presupposition, I, I believe your presupposition is you do have to think about scripture. When you open your Bible and you read it in the morning, I think you assume you're going to have to put some thought into it. That's why you drink coffee, right? So you think, so you know that, and you know God's got to give you understanding because you know that if you just read it in your own strength, you're going to miss the main point. Or you might see it, but then not care about the main point, right? Okay. Um, fourth, right theology honors God and is good for us. Wrong theology dishonors God and hurts people. Uh, the right theology matters because truth matters. So I believe we all agree with that. It matters that we get things like this doctrine right, okay? Now, we may still have disagreements by the end of it. I can't, I mean, I'm not saying we're, you know, there's certain things we may not know fully. That's true. But the point is, we do want to be right in what we believe. That's our goal, is to be right. And, um, and we believe that it also is good for us, because God is wise, and, um, and he knows what's best for us. And if he gives us something as true, because it is true, 
That's also good for us. Those two things are not exclusive, right? So we don't want to be driven by, well, I think this is what's good, so I'm going to say this has to be what's true. I want to say true and good go together. What does the Bible say is true and what does the Bible say is good? Those things are going to go together. Fifth, God is God and we cannot design him to fit our views or desires. We must not think, I like to think of God like this. That is a real, it does not matter what you like to think about God, right? It matters who God is and we ought to like to think of God as who he actually is. In other words, we ought to be saying, God, help me to actually like who you are. Right? There may be times where in my flesh, I'm not, but I'm wrong. Help me to like it, what you actually are, who you actually are. And so we want to say that um, up front. And again, I think we all agree with that issue. I just want to, I think it's helpful when we get the presuppositions out there so that when we're working through this, we can always know where we're starting from, right? Okay, so let's wrap it up here. Why study the doctrines of grace? We want to know what the Bible says and why it says it. It uses words like predestination and election and all these other things. And we want to know what they mean and we want to know why it says it. God didn't waste space. He didn't throw those words in there just randomly. Like, I mean, there, there's a purpose for every word in the Bible. Number two, we want to think rightly about other related issues. Human nature, why do evangelism, navigating the difficulties of life and thinking about the problem of evil. These, all these things go together to some degree. Number three, we want to have a right and full view of God's greatness that leads us to praise him in fullness of joy. The doctrines of grace should help us see how he's expressed his love, to see his holiness in the right light, to see his sovereignty as he displays it in human history, and the result should be to the praise of the glory of his grace, of his glorious grace, like we see in Ephesians 1. So the other way you could say this, as the catechism has said it, is we want to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I think that's what we're aiming at in the study, is, is helping us do that, right? That's why we do theology in general. That's why we're doing the studies on doctrines of grace. So next week, Lord willing, um, Doug will be talking to us about total depravity. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you for your grace that you have shown to us as we see in Ephesians 1. God, help us to, to leave here, even if we still have questions, uh, many questions perhaps even, that we would leave here um, just struck by the fact that you have mercifully, graciously redeemed us in Christ and in him alone, and that you have done it to the praise of your glory and the praise of your grace. God, help us as we go to worship now to to worship you in spirit and truth and praise your glorious grace towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.